uh, book of Romans, chapter 6. It's on page 1133. 1133 in the church Bibles. And we're going to read from verse 15. Romans 6, verse 15. titled Slaves to Righteousness. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You've been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I put this in human terms because you are weak in your natural selves, just as you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness. So now offer them in slavery to righteousness, leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now you've been set free from sin and have become slaves to God. The benefit you reap leads to holiness. And the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Thank you for leading us, you musicians. That's very helpful as a preparation for the sermon. I I did hear a definition of preaching, which was a monologue to mutes by a moron. It's not very nice, is it? Uh, obviously, the person who said that wasn't predisposed to listen to sermons the way that you are poised ready now. I know. So we're looking at Romans chapter 6. And I think that if you've read through it, you will appreciate that it's a demanding part of this letter to the Romans. What uh, we're going to do tonight is to have a quick uh, recap on last Sunday evening where uh, the illustration that was used in the courtroom where at a certain point in either the defense or the prosecution, a lawyer will stand up and say, Your Honor, I object. And reasons would need to be given. And in a way, Paul is a bit like that, except that he's writing and he anticipates certain objections to the logic, to the reason that he is presenting. And we looked last Sunday, and there is a degree of logic in this. Um, First objection, if God's grace increases when we sin, if we sin more, then we'll have more grace, then surely that's okay. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound, is the old reference. And Paul says, God forbid, by no means. 
Now he expects the second uh, objection in terms of how we live out the Christian life. And it is this. We've come to faith in Christ. We are in a community of grace. We are no longer under law. We are under grace. So then, if we are no longer under the law, we can live as we like. We can no longer be subject to the constraints of the moral law of God, for example. And we used the analogy last week about the law of the land, that when you break that, you couldn't possibly say to a policeman or somebody, I'm not under law, I'm under grace. It is as ridiculous as that. Except here we're thinking about the law of God, the moral imperative for people who embrace Jesus Christ. So this is the second question that we're going to deal with. And I would ask you, please, to try hard to follow me. It's going to be a demanding sermon to listen to, and hopefully it will be uh, um, beneficial in the long term. So if we're no longer under law, we can live as we please. Paul now is going to address that and try to present that as a challenge to these early Christians. Let me just say one thing that is worth repeating. When you think about this marvelous letter of Paul to the Romans, it is written to people who, granted, some are in Caesar's palace, high academics and uh, intellectual people, and slaves who probably had a very poor education. And as far as Paul was concerned, he's writing to both. And you don't need to be clever to understand what it means to struggle with sin and to confess and to know God's blessing in your life. So, what we have here is um, two pictures, if you like, of two masters. That's the thing that comes out here. Just picture two slave masters, if you like. It's put in that vivid way. So, in Jesus Christ, we have been set free from the slavery of sin, not sin itself, but from the slavery of sin, and now we are slaves to God. There's been this exchange. We're no longer serving ourselves. We are serving our Savior. And we've entered now into the arena where the struggle with sin is more real than we realized before. But the point that Paul is making here in verses 15 to the end of the chapter, is this. There is no middle ground. There's no third way. You are either serving one master or the other. The one that leads to death, the other one that leads to righteousness and life. I think Paul has, may well have the idea of what Jesus was saying in the Sermon on the Mount. You, you'll see that in Matthew chapter 6, one of these summing up parts of this sermon, and in verse 24. And Jesus says this, Matthew 6, verse 24, No one, no one, can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one or despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You may have both, but you can't serve both. The one will make mastery over the other. 
And that is true in any other context in terms of living out the Christian life. Okay? No middle ground, no third way. We are either slaves to sin and selfishness or we are slaves to our Saviour to live a life that is pleasing to him. Now this illustration of slavery seems rather insensitive and unsuitable. Look at verse 19 carefully. Bear in mind that some of the, the people would be reading this in, in the church, in the catacombs of Rome and various places. And by the way, it took almost 300 years before church buildings actually took on as places of worship. Before, there were lots of areas. The trouble for us is when we think church, we think building, we should think church, think people. So some of the recipients of this letter would themselves be slaves. Is Paul being insensitive? Look at verse 19. What do you think? I put, I put this in human terms because you are weak in your natural selves. We all are. Try, stop breaking a habit, whatever that is, and you'll know how difficult it is. And you think, yes, I've made it. And then only later on to succumb to its influence yet again. So he says that. And then in verse 19, just as you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer them in slavery to righteousness leading to holiness. Don't be a slave to sin. Don't let these habits morally uh, or, or in terms of uh, intellectually or culturally master you. You master them. So this illustration of slavery seems unsuitable and, and Paul is almost reluctant to use it. Yet he does. Because it's the great leveller for all people. The people in Caesar's palace were Roman citizens as Paul was or slaves. It's the same to both. Paul is reluctant to use it, but he does. And indeed, some of his readers being slaves with no choice. To be a slave in Rome was to have, Rome was to have no choice or actual free will. You have to, it, was, it was subservient. You have to obey your master. But the challenge of the gospel comes now to say you do have a choice. You do have a choice. If you are in servitude or if you are a free man, you're a Roman citizen. You have a choice to serve self. Make that your goal in life. I, me, my, that dominates people's lives, that's what you live for. Or, with the cross behind me, the self-life crossed out that you are serving Almighty God. And that's a choice. It's a response to the gospel that's brought you. And you have that in verses 16 to 18. So to refuse the lordship of Christ is to put yourself under the mastery of sin. Now, bear in mind Paul is trying to answer that uh, anticipated objection. If we are no longer under law, we can live as we please. Paul is actually saying, you know, sin deludes us. It, is, it has the ability to, for self-deception. And Paul is grateful to God for the Christians in Rome who are clear-headed, at least, 
And he's able to engage with their minds and challenge them about their lifestyle and their service of one master. This gift of grace is, if you like, a transfer of ownership. A transfer of ownership. I was under the tyranny of the law and self. I'm now under the liberty of grace and the Savior. It's, it's a complete transfer in that sense. And if we were to spend time just to really think through verse 17, it's a highly condensed verse, isn't it? Just, let's, just read it for a moment and think about it. From, bring all your powers of concentration on that. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. Now, think of the gospel coming and think of people at, at various levels understanding this, embracing Jesus Christ wholeheartedly. Wholeheartedly. Now then, if that is so with that key um, verse there, that, that, that verse, there's a key word that runs through, which you may not have picked up, um, and in chapter 6, and it comes six times. It's not vain repetition, it's an argument that's developing. From verse 13, for example, just look at this, um, and I'm sure you'll soon spot this keyword, offer. Now that's a voluntary thing. That's something wholeheartedly that you are responding to, okay? And you have it in verse 13, 16, and 19. And six times, this, this word, to offer. And it's a very interesting word, as we shall discover in a moment. So, verse 13. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather the transfer, okay? Offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and to offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. Before your lifestyle, the whole thrust of it was yourself life. Now it's giving to others, offering in a different direction because you're under new ownership. New ownership, the transfer. And then you have it in verse 16. Don't you know that when you offer, there it is, yourselves to someone to obey them as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, whether you're slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. And then also you have it in verse 19, and you can read that yourself. So, you see what he's doing, he's building up this argument of offering, offering. To place oneself at somebody else's disposal is to offer. Uh, tomorrow, there will be a wedding here, and there will be, if you like, the same transfer of allegiance. The two people who say that I will love you in good times and bad, in sickness, in health, for better, for worse. To offer voluntarily as a choice. It's like that when we trust in the Lord Jesus. Or another word when we think about this word offer is 
is to present as a sacrifice. Now, there's a play in words here, because in the Old Testament, a sacrifice was once and for all done. But you know the classic verse in Romans, chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, pleasing to God, which is your spiritual worship, your reasonable service. Do it, keep doing it. Offer in the continuous. And this offering, if you like, is not an emotional or an impulsive thing. It's not under the duress of a charismatic leader. It is not the spur of a moment. It's not that. It could be that. God can graciously use that. But what it is, this offering, is a measured, informed, calculating decision as much as you can. I would give you a sentence, and we'll come back to it in the course of the sermon. It's this. It's not a once and for all, as sometimes the holiness movement in the past generation would believe that you'd have experience of the Spirit, and once and for all, you enter into a higher level of holiness. And many people who genuinely believed that found that later on, they themselves would lapse back into sin, and then they would question their salvation. And some believers got into difficulty like that. It's not a once and for all. It's present continuous all the time. Let me use an illustration. Too many of us, too many Christian people are what I want to call, to use this phrase, between us. Between us. I don't think it's in the dictionary, the word. By that I mean this. As God's people... We live between Egypt and Canaan, to use an Old Testament illustration. Yes, we've be, been delivered from slavery under Pharaoh in Egypt. We are saved, but for sure we're not satisfied. And you read the history of God's people complaining and just going through the motions, but never doing anything, never getting anywhere, between deliverance from Egypt and the promised land into an arid place. It's a miserable business to be a betweener. Or, come to the New Testament, to live between Good Friday, to know the cross, but to not to know the power of the resurrection in your life, just to be a betweener. And there are people like that. Or, you can be a betweener in this sense, that the Great Commission has been proclaimed to us. Go into all the world and preach the gospel and so forth. A betweener from that and Pentecost, the power of God to fill us and to enable us to do it. And often we seem to be between us. Some people don't like the reference to Pentecost because they've had Extreme examples of people who put them under pressure. I know some people who won't go on an Alpha away day because other people on, on the, the, the way day for praying for the Spirit have been extreme. I've been on an Alpha away day and uh, found it very stimulating. But we, we, we can always be overreacting to either bad role models or ne negative examples of how other people 
have um, lived and experienced God's work. Don't be a betweener. Let me pose a question then as we try to think through Romans 6. Why is God so interested in our bodies? Why is God so interested in our bodies? Well, if you know a little of the New Testament, you'll know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So if you go out on a Saturday night, you don't leave your heart or your spirit in the car. If whatever things that you might do, you, a body, is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not suggesting we beat ourselves up and try to um, have a guilt complex, but that's how it is. And the Bible tells us that people were permitted by God to use their bodies for fulfilling his purpose, as indeed he calls you and I to do this. For example, let's go back to the Old Testament again, the example of Moses taking the rod in his hand to conquer Egypt and to open up the Red Sea. David he used his hand with the sling to defeat Goliath and the Philistines. He used the mouths and tongues of the prophets to bring God's word. And we were singing this morning, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. They are part of our body. And the Apostle John saw, using his eyes, a vision of heaven. No sorrow, no sighing, no dying. But conversely, thinking of Romans 6, you could read the Bible of accounts of people who used their bodies for sinful purposes, for selfish purposes. And perhaps the classic example is King David, who, seeing a very beautiful woman, Bathsheba, bathing in the cool of the day, used so much of his body to bring heartache and difficulty. He plots a scheme and writes in his hand a contract to put Uriah in the heat of the battle so that he would die to cover up his sin. And little wonder that perhaps pinnacle of the penitential psalms create in me a clean heart, renew a right spirit within me. Well, you see the point too. That's why God is interested in our bodies. Uh, we're going to have the covenant prayer of John Wesley that's going to come up in front of you in a moment. And uh, it's very interesting. Let me just introduce it to you and then I would like us to take a little time out and read it together um, and then come back to the sermon. But before we do, the Wesleys believed at a given time you could have reached a stage of entire sanctification. You could be pure and holy throughout. Now, they were very sincere in that. They believed you'd have an experience of God, that he would purge your heart, and you would not lapse into sin. But... He found and discovered that it just wasn't the case for himself and certainly not for that, those early days of Methodism. And out of that, and perhaps for that reason, he felt that within the church they should covenant to realize their weaknesses, their besetting sins, to once a year just come to God not as a one-off experience, done and dusted, I'm living a, a perfect life now, but to give myself to him again with great resolve and fresh 
commitment. Now, it would be easy to criticize the Wesleys for an overemphasis. But we were singing, weren't we? Purify my heart, cleanse me from within, make me holy, refine as fire. And that's the process. Maybe this sermon is a bit more of a refining fire for us as we work out some of these um, besetting sins ourselves. So, with that introduction, this covenant prayer which is used, let's, let's read it together and try to read it in the context of what it is for you and I as Christian people to struggle with sin, not to let it be our master. Okay, let's begin. I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you, or laid aside for you, exalted for you, or brought low for you. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and wholeheartedly yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. And now, glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are mine and I am yours. So be it. And the covenant made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Amen. Now, that's a little time out of the sermon. We're nearly finished. But you see why? That when you come to Romans 6, you realize something of the challenge of living the Christian life. Not allowing habits to dominate our lives. And they could... There are so, so many that are true for all of us. Some people have a very short fuse and they, they often think, can I ever control my temper? And, well, that's just one example. There are so many, aren't there? Sadly, we do lapse into sin and selfishness. The challenge of the sermon in Romans 6 is this, that you shouldn't let it dominate your life. Think for a moment. We live in a free country. But even within a free country, we need warnings. Go out of here and you will see signs saying, kill your speed. Or you're on the motorway. You've had a busy day and you're really tired. And it says, tiredness kills. They are warnings. Because, why are they warnings? Because they've been casualties, fatalities on the motorways, and so, so forth. In a free country, we need warnings in driving. Slow down, no entry, all that sort of thing. And we could use many other examples on neon lights, signs to us, don't go there, don't do that. Just use an example as we try to bring this to a conclusion, and this will test you. Um, there was uh, a heresy in the, that plagued the church, and it was called antinomianism. There you are. That's a nice word for you to finish with. Um, it's, it, it's made up of two words. Uh, it's going to come up in front of you. There it is, antinomianism. Um, anti, by its nature, against, uh, and um, nom nomos, which is law. 
people who are against the law. Now you know that you can't drive if you're against the law because you're going to get booked with cameras or police or what have you. And what God is saying here is this, that we can't live like that because it denies the gospel. It denies the gospel. We're not perfect. We are not perfect. But we don't need to be slaves to sin. We don't need to be. And if you turn in the book of Jude, just as an example, it's easy to find. You turn to the book of Revelation and you come to one page letter, Jude. And uh, if you're using the church Bible, it's not even numbered here, but it's 1231. If you're using the church Bible, 1231, the book of Jude 4. There's one letter. And here it is. Here is antinomianism touched on, if you like. Perhaps verse 3 would help just to put it in context. Dear friends, although I was eager to write to you about the salvation we share, so he's writing to people who have embraced Jesus Christ, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. Why? For certain men whose condemnation condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men who change the grace of our God into license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. Now, you see what Jude is saying. I want you to be positive but I have to give this negative note. So this antinomianism refers to those who have rejected the law as binding on their behavior. Not so much their belief, but their behavior. And that happens within the church. May I say this though? You say, yes, heretics are guilty of antinomianism. Not so. You and I are too, if we're not careful. We can rationalize. We can justify Behavior when we know that it's wrong. So, how do we conclude? Just two sentences, really. The first is this abusing grace stagnates our spiritual development. Abusing grace stagnates us. And I tell you what it does it, it, it doesn't happen overnight. It has much to do with attitudes as actions. It, it, it dulls our spiritual taste buds, if you like. We become just bland. And it devalues our spiritual worship. We are not offering ourselves. We are withholding ourselves from Jesus. So we become casual and indifferent. Abusing grace stagnates us. And we need to stop doing that. We need to say, that's a sin, that's not right. I'm not going to make any progress in my Christian life. But the second and a more positive one that comes out of Romans 6 is this, that living in grace motivates us. There is nothing like it. There's nothing like living in grace to motivate you to do things that normally your selfish nature wouldn't want you to do. You may say, I can't be bothered, or I'm too tired, 
or I'm too busy. Grace motivates us. Or it says, I'm too proud, I won't say sorry. Living in grace motivates us. And that's the key word. Perhaps it's the acid test. I offer myself. An offering. An offering to God. Unconditionally. And I free myself. We free ourselves to accept God's purpose. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes becoming a Christian is much harder than not being one. You, you, you have to face that. Being a Christian, you will rejoice in a way that an unbeliever can't. Being a Christian means that you will suffer in a way that an unbeliever can't. And you can't have the one without the other. And you will know of people who say, well, I've given up my faith. It didn't work and so on. And maybe you need to get alongside them and, and help and, and encourage. Living in grace motivates us. We offer ourselves unconditionally. We accept God's providence and we rejoice in the Lord. And we become convinced of Paul's concluding statement in verse 23. Yes, the wages of sin is death, for sure. But the gift of God is eternal life. Eternal life in and through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Well, let's go on trusting him, serving him, obeying him, following him. And allow ourselves to be a fragrant offering, acceptable to God. And as a consequence, it frees us from ourselves as well as our sin. And makes us to be more like the Saviour whom we love and serve.